Well, welcome again. My name is Derek. I'm the pastor. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. And if you're just joining us, we are uh, in, the, in the middle, not in the middle, we're actually still you know, very close to the beginning of a series uh, in Romans that's only centered in Romans 8. So this is such, a, such an important chapter in the Bible that we're just taking a few weeks to settle in in this chapter. In fact, we're going to look at the exact same scripture that we looked at last week. We're going to look at it again because there's so much in just those verses that we're going to dig into it one more time. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 8, and I will read for us verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen above. Listen now to God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for those visible words that we got to celebrate in baptism before, and we're grateful for your written word here. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, Will you enable us to understand you, to know you, to know ourselves more deeply in light of who you are, and to see, Lord, how this beautiful proclamation that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus frees us to live in obedience. Lord, open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts that we might see and know and love you more today. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to just ask you to indulge me for just a second before we really kind of jump in. I'm going to do kind of a a little bit of a deep dive theological review for us. So uh, two big theological concepts we've talked about before, justification and sanctification. Justification is the act of God's grace where he pardons us of sin and declares us to be righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a once and for all action. Sanctification, on the other hand, also uh, a work of God's grace that's more of a process of God making us to become more like Christ over time. So justification is the declarative act, the once and for all act. Sanctification is the process of God working in us to renew us and to make us more like Jesus. 
So here's really the question that we're dealing with in this passage is are we talking about justification or sanctification, particularly when Paul uh, opens up here in verse 4 and he says that that God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of the law. Is Paul talking about justification there or about sanctification? You don't need to shout it out or raise your hands. But let's just ponder it for a second. Well, if you really kind of looked at the first few verses, really first one through three and kind of the first half of four, well, you'd really say he's talking about justification, isn't he? No condemnation. There's been a declaration of what Jesus has done, that God sent his son to become sin, to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve so that God's righteous requirements might be fulfilled in us. That's justification. But then Paul goes on to say, so that they might be fulfilled in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, who don't walk by the flesh, but walk by the Spirit, living, walking, life kind of stuff. Boy, that sounds a lot like sanctification, doesn't it? So which is it? Well, I'm going to cheat and say it's both, because they really can't be separated from one another. I don't know if you follow these Winter Olympics. We didn't watch them a lot, but this was uh, Sean White's last Winter Olympics. Sean White is probably the, you know, by most people's ad- admission, the greatest snowboarder that, uh, of all time, of all the long history of snowboarding. <clears throat> uh, and uh, this was his last Olympics. Uh, in the 2010 Olympics, though, really was kind of the peak of his time. This, this is a guy who had been snowboarding. He was sponsored, actually, when he was seven years old. He was getting paid to, to snowboard when he was seven years old. So he, he's, been, he's been the best snowboarder in the world for a long, long time. And in 2010 at the Winter Olympics, uh, he was so far ahead of everybody else that when it came down to the, to, to the last run, He had the gold medal so locked up that he literally could have taken his last run and done no tricks and and gotten no score and still won the gold medal. He was that far ahead of everybody else. So what he did actually is pretty amazing in light of that. A guy who had the gold medal completely locked up, who didn't need to do anything, who literally could have just gone down the mountain and done done nothing and still been crowned with the gold, actually did an extreme amount of something. He pulled off the biggest tricks that have ever been pulled off in snowboarding history to that time. He did a trick that nobody had ever done. He did so much, even though he had it all completely locked up. So... Why is that? Why is it that Sean White, being secured of the gold medal, knowing with full assurance that he was going to win the gold, went down and did something super risky and tried something that nobody else had ever even tried or pulled off? Well, he did that because of the dynamic that we're talking about here in Scripture, is that when we are assured, it actually gives us freedom to engage. Instead of giving us the freedom to do nothing, when we are assured of who we are, it gives us the freedom to engage. And that's the connection between justification and sanctification here in this this passage, is that those of us upon whom God has pronounced no condemnation are now called with that full and complete assurance, not to a life of licentiousness, of walking away, but to a life actually of obedience, of following 
of seeing the Spirit at work in us, of setting our minds on something different, we are called as those with complete and full assurance to walk in court, uh, behind Jesus, to follow Jesus. And I don't know if you noticed this too, but when I read those 11 verses, did you hear how the Trinity is just all over that? This beautiful truth of Christianity, right, is that God is both one and three. One God and three persons. And you heard that in the first few verses that God did something that the law could not do, that he sent his son. So the father, the first person of the Trinity, sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to become sin for us so that we might not be condemned by sin. And then we have this language about walking with the Spirit. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all throughout this passage. And today we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on that third aspect, on the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit sometimes, I think, in church is, is like we think about him kind of like we think about our gallbladder, where it's like, I think it's important, but I don't really know what it does, you know? So the Holy Spirit's kind of like that sometimes. We're like, yeah, I, I think he's God. I, I just don't know totally what he does and what to do with him. We're going to try to solve some of that today. So we're going to look at five things that the Holy Spirit does for us in the work of sanctification. Five things that the Holy Spirit does in God's work in sanctification in our lives, okay? So let's look at the first one. The first thing that the Spirit does is he enables us to fight sin. Look at verse 10 again. This is what Paul says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul says there's actually a conflict at work in us. Dead body, live spirit. That there's a battle, a conflict that's going on within us. That we can say there is no condemnation, so the work of Jesus has been declared. That we can truly say that we are not who we once were. But before Jesus returns, we still deal with sin in the body, don't we? We still deal with the struggle in our lives. And I think for some of us, when we look at the struggles in our lives, that can make us get really depressed. It can turn us really negative. It can make us think, you know what? I'm not sure I'll ever actually get any better. I'm not sure I'll ever overcome any of these things. And we see the struggle as actually something that's discouraging. I want to tell you just the opposite this morning, is that the struggle is evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. C.S. Lewis said, said this, no one goes kicking and screaming into hell. What he meant is that there's no one who doesn't want to be walking one way who's walking that way. The picture that the Bible paints of an unbeliever is somebody who is running away from God. Somebody not who is trying so hard to follow God and just can't, but somebody who is actually running away. In fact, salvation is pictured as God coming to us, grabbing us and turning us around and bringing us to himself. So the state of the heart that is untransformed, that is unredeemed by Jesus, is a heart that is against him all the time. It's a heart that doesn't want to do what he, what he says. It's a heart that doesn't obey. It's a heart where, friends, there is no struggle. There is no conflict if you are running away from God and you don't have any care about running in that direction. The fact that there is conflict in you is actually evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. Think about a fever. We've, we've all had or been around fevers probably at some point in the last couple of years. This is what happens in our bodies. Something foreign kind of comes in. 
and our body decides we don't want that foreign thing, it's bad for us. So what happens is the body starts fighting and that's what the fever is. Our temperature raises because it's evidence that our bodies are actually fighting against the intruder. If there was no fever, it would, there would be no evidence of a fight. The fever obviously tells us something bad is going on, but it also tells us even more so our bodies are doing something about it. Or think about the brakes in your car. If you are driving 100 miles an hour toward a telephone pole and you slam on the brakes, there's going to be conflict. You will hear a screeching and your body will lurch all around and it will feel like things are you know, going crazy and your car is about to break apart. <laughs> but that conflict is really beneficial for you, isn't it? Because without that conflict, you just go headlong into the telephone pole. The conflict is evidence that something good is at work. So let me just ask you, what, do, what are you struggling with right now? What are you fighting against? What feels like a challenge in your life, in your walk with Christ? And I want you to see right now that that challenge is evidence that Jesus is at work in you, that the Spirit is at work in you. That conflict is evidence that the Holy Spirit's going to work. So there's the first thing. The Holy Spirit actually enables us to fight sin, to struggle. The second thing really kind of comes from that, and it's this, is that the Spirit enables us to repent of sin. Listen to verse 6 again. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Repeatedly, actually, in this passage, Paul calls Christians to set their minds on the Spirit, to actually take a particular action in turning from the things of the flesh, from sin, and toward Jesus. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul says that this is actually a gift of God, that it's evidence of God's Spirit at work, that we need the Holy Spirit to work in us in order for us to repent, but that what repentance means is actually turning from those idols in our hearts, the things that we set up as kings in our hearts, and turning then away from them and toward Jesus. I hope you have seen the movie The Lion King. If you haven't, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it for you. But The Lion King is this great story, you know, about the kingdom, the lion who's the king of the kingdom, who's about to give the kingdom to his son, who's about to inherit this. And the, the, the lion, the king's brother, is the evil scar who has plans to overthrow the king and to kill him and to take the kingdom for himself. And there's this really funny scene where he's, he's enlisted a couple of hyenas to kind of help him, Scar, the, the, the bad guy has, and he's telling them of his plan, you know, to overthrow the king and what he's going to do, and this is kind of how it goes. He's talking to the hyenas about his plan, and he tells them, you know, get prepared because it's about to happen, and then one of the hyenas named Bonsai says, yeah, prepared, Scar, prepared, prepared. Wait, for what? What are we preparing for? And Scar says, for the death of the king. And then Bonsai says, what? Is he sick? And Scar says, no, you fool, we're going to kill him, and Simba too. And then the other hyena, Shinzi, says, great idea, who needs a king? And they both start singing, no king, no king, no king. And Scar says, you fools, I will be the king. This is actually the general pattern of sin at work in our lives, right? Is that when we think that we are kind of fleeing to freedom, when we're leaving God's good rule, we think we're kind of leaving the rule of anything, right? Right? But what happens is that we're simply paying homage to another king. 
We're simply moving and replacing one king with another and bowing before the wrong king. But this is also the process of repentance. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. It's replacement therapy. He takes from us our idols, the kings that we've set up in our lives, and he replaces them actually with the true and the right king. That is the process of repentance. It is turning from one thing, turning from our sin, and turning to Jesus for forgiveness and for kingship, for guidance and for worship. That's repentance, and that's what the Holy Spirit works in us. So that's the second thing. Here's the third thing, is that the Holy Spirit enables us not only to fight against sin and repent of our sin, but actually to hate our sin and to love God's word. Listen in verse seven again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul is saying that the mind that is set on the flesh, the description of an unbeliever, is that it's hostile to God and and it's hostile to God's law in particular. So by by way of, uh, of, of just comparing the two, we could say that the mind that is set on the spirit, the believer's mind is supposed to be actually submitting to God's law to desire God's law, to love God's law. Now, I don't know if this sounds strange if you were here last week because we read those, those, those words from the first few verses where Paul called God's law the, the law of sin and death. What's going on there? How can Paul go from saying it's the law of sin and death to then saying that those who, who are walking in the flesh uh, don't submit to God's law, indicating that really those who are walking by the Spirit should be submitting to God's law? Why should we submit to the law of sin and death? Well, again, it's not a flaw in the law. It's a flaw in us. God's law is perfect. God's law is so perfect that we cannot achieve it. And so when we come to God's law thinking that we can be made right, justified, or sanctified by obeying the law, then we just prove to ourselves that we're unable. So it reflects upon us our inability. But what God does say all throughout the Bible is that obedience to his law is not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is actually a product of salvation. That those who have been redeemed, who have had this great declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation, those who belong to Jesus are those who are supposed to now love God's word, God's law. And so the process is this, is that we open up God's word and we look at it and it's a mirror to ourselves. And we see ourselves more clearly and we see who we are and it drives us to the cross. And we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, I've seen now through your word, through your perfect word, my imperfection. And I need you and I need your forgiveness and your atoning blood. And it drives us to the cross. But when we leave the cross, where do we go? We come back to God's word to be conformed to it. Because it's beautiful. Because God actually wants us He wants to shape us and form us into the image of Christ. You know, this is all actually throughout uh, the Bible. I want you to just listen to a couple of psalms here. Psalm 19. A psalm of David. A beautiful song that God's people would continually sing. And listen to what it's about. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then listen to this. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's how God's word speaks of itself. That's how God's word speaks of his law. Listen to Psalm 119, the longest psalm in all of the Bible, and the, 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 con- the, the content of this psalm is all about God's law and how beautiful it is. Listen to this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in them. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness give me life. That is the work of the Spirit in someone's life, to make us hate our sin and actually love the Lord. You know, sometimes we get so confused about this, what sin and righteousness is. And we have this idea that, that sin is just all the fun stuff that we want to do that God just, because he's mean, doesn't let us do. That we're somehow just kind of held under his thumb, that he wants to just keep us in check. You know, you can kind of do these things, but let me control you so you don't do the really fun, the really great stuff. But the proclamation of the Bible is 100% different. What God desires for us is that we flourish. What God desires for us is that we're whole. What God desires for us is that we live into being the people that he has created us to be. And he knows that sin will destroy us. And because he loves us, he doesn't want us to be destroyed. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to start to train us to see our pettiness as ugly, to see our pride as ugly, to see our lusts as ugly, to see our consumption in in the face of others' loss as ugly, to see our anger as ugly, to see those things as sin in our hearts, to begin to hate them and to begin to love instead his word. Let's keep going. Fourth thing the Spirit does for us is it renews us in the image of Jesus. Listen to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What Paul is saying is something amazing, is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work through the Holy Spirit in our lives at work to redeem us, to do the same thing, to take dead people and make them alive. And for Christians, this means that he is continually changing us, making us into something different. A few years ago, Joy and I watched this show called uh, Overhaulin'. It's kind of weird. Uh, It's kind of like this, uh, it's like an extreme home makeover, but for cars. And this one show was pretty great, though. It was this, this guy who was a, he was a 50-something-year-old pastor in California, and he had just always loved old Camaros. And he had saved up and, and bought uh, this 1969 Camaro. And it was, it was cool, uh, but it was kind of just your basic, you know, old Camaro. They loved this car. 
his family uh, decided that one time that, uh, that they were going to, to kind of play a well, it wasn't really a practical joke. It was, um, it was something pretty amazing. They, they took the car. They told him that it was just going in kind of for an oil change. He walked into the, to the garage, and his car's not there. His family says, yeah, we took it in for an oil change for you. Thought it'd be really nice. But what they had actually done was handed it over to, this, to this over, the overhauling people and to this, to this guy who's like one of the best car designers in the world. And he took this guy's old car, this just kind of regular 1969 Camaro, and, uh, and, and took out the engine and the transmission and, and replaced it with a 400-horsepower engine and a new transmission, completely redid all of the inside, completely repainted everything, took his car and remade it in the most amazing, remarkable way. And so it shows back up in his garage, and this guy walks over there, and he sees his car, but his car to the most incredible extreme he's ever seen it. And that, a lot of way, in a lot of ways, I think is exactly what Paul tells us here that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. He is taking us and he is forming us into the image of Jesus. And it's still us. But we look more and more like Jesus in the same way that a son might look more and more like his father as he grows. Is that we are to look more and more like our older brother, Jesus. As he works in us, as he changes us, friends, this is the wonderful encouragement that we have is that it doesn't just stop with your salvation, is that God is still at work in you. He is still actively at work. He wants you to be someone different than you are, and he has sent his spirit to do that work of making you something new. So again, when you see the conflict, do not give up hope. God is at work doing something amazing in you. Here's the final thing, and we'll close with this, is that the Spirit reminds us of who we are. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a beautiful phrase. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. What he's saying is that what the Spirit does is he actually reminds us that we belong to him. He reminds us of those beautiful words that Paul wrote in the first opening verses there, is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and we belong to him. And so much of what the Spirit's work is, is convincing our really forgetful minds that we belong to Jesus even when we don't think we do. We started watching with our family the other day uh, the, the series the, the Chosen, which is a, a a fictionalized account of, of Jesus and his disciples. It takes, I think, uh, a faithful way of taking God's scriptures and applying them, but also fills in, kind of does a little bit of creative license. I know that doesn't sit well with everybody, and we've only seen the first one, but so far it seems to be a faithful representation of what the Bible says. But there's a wonderful illustration in that first episode of, of exactly what Paul is talking about here. Because the episode opens up and you see this little girl and she's, she's talking with her dad, and she's supposed to be asleep. And she wakes up because she's afraid, and she comes to find her dad. She's afraid she's, been, she's woken up. And, uh, and, and, he, and he takes her under his arm, he puts his arm around her, and he says, okay, what do we do when we're afraid? And he starts speaking over her the words of Isaiah 43. He reads her these words. He says, you know, but thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And he speaks those words over her to calm her. He says, when we're anxious, we get to remind ourselves who we are. Well, as the episode goes on, we realize that that little girl is actually Mary Magdalene. 
She grows up, and her life does not look as an adult like it did as a child. She's troubled. She's gone astray. She, in fact, has demons inhabiting her. And many people come and try to cast these demons out, and they cannot. The rabbis can't do it. And we find at the end of the the episode, we meet Jesus, and he comes and he finds her. And it's really beautiful the way that they portray Jesus casting out these demons. Because what he does is he takes her aside and he, he kind of holds her head in his hands and he looks at her and, he, and instead of actually saying, you know, I cast out these demons, what he does is he actually speaks these words of Isaiah 43 over her. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. It's a beautiful reminder of who she belongs to, of who she is. The process of him even casting out the demons in her life and renewing her is the process of her, him reminding her of her identity. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, that's your identity. There is no condemnation. And because of that, you are freed now to walk according to the ways that he has laid out for you. You are freed to follow Jesus You are free to fight sin. You are free to engage in the conflict. You are free to hate your sin and love God's law. You are free because God's spirit is at work in you. Will you join me as we thank him for that now? Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for these wonderful words of scripture that remind us of what Jesus has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is continuing to do in the lives of your children. What will you Be at work as you've promised to do. Engage us in the fight. Show us how to repent. Show us, Lord, what it means to hate our sin and to love righteousness. Show us what it means, Lord, even for us to be renewed in the image of Christ. And do so even, Lord, by reminding us of our status, the gold medal status that you have given us because of Jesus' work. We pray, Lord, that you would do this by the power of your spirit today. Amen.